0: Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. The first part we're going to do, start a new study called Rewards. And um, this is called the Doctrine of Rewards. And uh, we'll take our time going through this. Uh, we'll study every reward that is possible for the believer to achieve, and how to achieve it, and what to do about it, and, or, and then we'll look at the negative side, too, of how to lose it. And so we're going to start, I think it, it'll be a fascinating study. This, 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 this type of topic uh, is not typically discussed because of Reformed theology, probably, um, or just people's ignorance about the doctrine of rewards. Um, in most people's concepts, um, rewards is a foreign concept because it's not talked about. Most churches just talk about salvation, and they, they, they make that the end all, which is only really the beginning of, of a believer's life. Uh, the first step is salvation, but the, the really the, the, the big issue, the big ticket item for believers and what the New Testament's really focusing in on is the sanctification of that believer. And the rewarding of that believer because of that sanctification process. So there's a compensation that goes along with your your sanctification and your works. Um, and we're going to talk about that tonight. So it's actually a very fascinating study. Um, and once you start grasping uh, the reward concept, um, it actually incites in you the proper motivation of why to live holy and, uh, and pure and ur- with urgency and to live right because... Um, Uh, of the issue of rewards or loss of rewards, So um, I think you'll like it. Okay, well, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can uh, study tonight. Uh, We pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us, uh, that he would illuminate our minds to this doctrine uh, taught in Scripture, and that, Father, we could live it out before you. So um, uh, may the Holy Spirit be our teacher tonight and guide tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Um, one of the things about rewards, when you're looking at rewards, is there's bad theology out there, obviously, about rewards, or it's non-existent. Um, One of the things uh, that most people have a misnomer about is, well, all believers get rewards. Well, that's not necessarily true. Um, When we actually delve into rewards and we look at each one, what you'll start realizing is that there are active rewards and there's passive rewards. And uh, what I mean by that is um, uh, passive rewards means that all believers get these things. For instance, all believers get resurrected, or at least for uh, the ones that die in Christ, the, the ones that are, saved, uh, are sorry, saved during the time of the rapture are translated, but a glorified body is a reward given to all believers, so that's a passive reward, so that adoption is passive, but um, like for instance, to rule and reign with Christ is actually an active reward, that's something you have to earn uh, and get, and so that's uh, ruling and reigning with Christ is not automatic. Now it will say that the church will rule and reign with Christ, and that's true, but not all believers will be able to participate in that rule and reign. And that's why when you look at um, in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 and then you look at uh, chapter 20, you will see the 24 elders. And the 24 elders uh, uh, represent the church. If you look at their song, they're saved from every tribe, to a tongue, and language. They're redeemed from all nations. And so the 24 elders, because they're king priests, have uh, rulership, but then they're priests at the same time. That's Revelation chapter one, um, and and therefore they cast their crowns. The Greek is the idea that they just don't cast their crowns one time; they cast their crowns repeatedly every time the the four living creatures say "holy, holy, holy," and so it's a repeated action, and that crown stays with them. Uh, where does twenty four come? It comes from the twenty four courses that David uh, uh, organized the Levitical priesthood at, by. There was twenty four courses. And, and so since the church is a king-priest individual, um, there's where the 24 comes from. So putting all the clues together, we understand that the 24 elders represent the church, okay? And they get to rule and reign. But it means, doesn't mean that every Christian rules and reigns. It's those who receive those rewards. And we'll talk about the five crowns. We'll talk about the, the, the Nike believer, the Nike believer. That's where we actually get the word Nike. Uh, Nike in Greek um, is, uh, uh, Nike in Greek means overcomer. And, and so the, uh, Revelation 2 and 3 talks about the overcomer. So not all believers are overcomers. They're overcomers of the world in the ultimate sense. As Christ says, you have over, I've overcome the world and you're an overcomer. But there's other things in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, specific things that you have to overcome. And some people will overcome them and some of them won't. Uh, and so that would be the degree of rewarding that it happens. So, um, so bad theology says everyone gets the same rewards. Um, if you look at that as far as compensation is concerned, um, if everyone got the same rewards, then that would not be fair. Salvation is given to all because Christ did the work, obviously. But rewards are based on your work, based on your sanctification, about based on your responsibility. And so it wouldn't be fair if Joe Blow gets saved and he does nothing with his life, uh, Christian life, versus someone that you know, is serving the Lord, you know, uh, evangelizing, discipling, and, and doing this all their life. Uh, it's obvious in, in just looking at both aspects that somebody needs to get more rewards than the other. It couldn't be fair that one Christian wasted his life And another Christian spent his whole time serving the Lord and being on the Lord's agenda. And so that's where rewards balances that out as far as compensation is concerned about what kind of life that Christian led. Again, we're not talking about salvation, and salvation is a free gift to everyone because of the work of Christ. And so we got to make sure you keep that in mind. Okay. Some people will say, well, I don't understand, Brandon. A a desire for rewards, you know, it must be wrong. You know, it it doesn't seem that's a a, a right motivation. But here's the problem. Messiah and Paul and the writers of the New Testament all said it was a good motivation. So why would Christ say, store up treasure in heaven? If that's not a good motivation, I don't know what is because the Messiah is telling you to do that. And Paul is, is, is really, uh, if I could use the word OCD, about losing rewards. He doesn't want to be disqualified for the prize. He wants to compete according to the rules, and his big thing is not being disqualified. Well, what does disqualified mean? Disqualification doesn't mean losing salvation. You cannot lose eternal life, because in the nature of eternal life is, is eternal. It can never be taken away from you. But you can be disqualified. You can shipwreck your faith. And when you disqualify, be, are disqualified, you're not competing according to the rules of the game, which means you're losing rewards. And you're disqualified for ruling and reigning. You're disqualified for rewards. And, and we'll talk about that. So um, I was, uh, you know, interesting enough about this, where did, this, where did this, this reaction towards, well, that's not a proper motivation, come from? believe it or not, C.S. Lewis actually pointed where this, motiva- this wrong motivation came from. It came from the Stoics and actually Immanuel Kant that got into Christianity and said, hey, striving for rewards is wrong. You should be more Stoic about things. And Immanuel Kant uh, echoed the same thing. And, and C.S. Lewis blasted that and said, that's not Christianity. That comes from Greek thought. So when you hear a Christian say, well, you know, the desires uh, for rewards is wrong, that's actually coming from Greek Stoicism. And, and C.S. Lewis obviously pointed that out, and I thought that was very interesting because I've heard Christians say that. I'm not saying they're Stoics, and I'm not saying they're followers of Immanuel, Immanuel Kant, but when you start realizing the origins of, of people who really said that, and you hear Christians saying it, it's like, wow, you don't even realize what you're saying or where that comes from. That comes from Greek thought. Look, to me, is, it's real simple. If Messiah says this is worth doing, storing up treasure in heaven, uh, I think that's a proper motivation for that. I mean, think about this in, 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 in dealing with people, uh, whether it's in employment or you're dealing with children. Um, you do rewards and then you do penalties right as motivators. You could do both right in rewards for work and there 's goals at work and employees achieve those goals and it and, and motivates people and then there 's a negative motivation, so you you do that with both kids Why, why would we think that 's foreign to what rewards are? <clears throat> the third point. Is the the mentality, which is another bad theology, is I just don't care about I I just care about making it to heaven, Brandon. I really don't care about rewards. All I want to do is just make it to heaven. Uh, And what's wrong with that attitude? Well, the the attitude is juvenile. It is a baby mentality. It it is a a, a, like baby Christian mentality. Um, You're to get past the idea. Okay, you got your salvation. Okay, now what? What are you going to do with your life? What, what does my life mean? And, and so just saying that, well, I'm just glad I made it into heaven. I just, you know, I got my fire insurance, and then you don't care about the rest of your life, that's, that's, that's sophomoric. That's, that's juvenile. And, and honestly, it, it's, it's spiritual immaturity to think in those terms. Uh, we have to go on to maturity and, and whatnot. Uh, yes, of course, gratitude plays a part in that but as a motivator, But as you'll see tonight, one of the issues about rewards is to be well pleasing to the Lord. We want to be well pleasing to Him. Those who don't consider rewards don't think about being well pleasing many times. And we'll talk about that. The other thing, and this is something I have to just bring out when we're dealing with rewards, is from the Calvinist Reformed theology Mm -hmm. and even Arminian theology, which we are neither. for some reason, well, I know the reason, but they always make that rewards, uh, sorry, not rewards, that works are being used to question whether the person's or s- person is saved or not. And that is actually foreign to the text. When you look at your works and you look at your life, you know, good works or bad works, what your works indicate to you is not whether you're saved or not, but indicate whether or not you're being discipled properly. If you're growing, if you're maturing, that's what your works are supposed to do. And look, I'll take you through all the the passages that the Calvinists misinterpret, like make your calling and election sure. Well, that calling and election has nothing to do with salvation. If you look at the text, it's a calling and election to servanthood. It's a calling and election to discipleship if you read the text. And, and what he's saying is make your discipleship sure that you're doing the right thing to be rewarded. It has nothing to do with salvation. So, so, the, so people will use the phrase, well, by, your, by their fruits you will know them. And it's like, well, wait wait a second, time out. You've got to read that in context of when Jesus said that. And in context, he was talking about the Pharisees. And in context, he was talking about their teachings. And he says, by, your, their fruit, by, their, by their fruit, you will know them. What was he referring to? Not their works, because the Pharisees actually lived very moral. Very moral. I mean, outwardly, they were, they were tip-top shape, outwardly. But inwardly, they were messed up. What he was saying is the fruit of the teachings of the Pharisees are what you're to watch, watch for. And that's what he was referring to, the false teaching that was coming out of the Pharisees' mouth. That was the fruit he was referring to. So you'll hear the Calvinists or the Armenians say, we need to be fruit inspectors. So it's like, whoa, wait a second. The fruit inspecting has to do with false theology, false doctrine, not so much the behavior. Because, look, I can set up a Mormon in front of a Christian sometimes, and the Mormon can outdo them on their behavior, right? I mean, some of the Mormons are the most, most moral people, but that doesn't make them saved, right? And some Christians are really bad in their behavior, but they did get saved. They, you know, they, they went to a VBS, and they were saved at 12 years old or whatever, and, and, and they got saved, but then they haven't been living for the Lord. And, uh, and, and that's what we call prodigal son living, and we'll talk about the prodigal son involved in that, because the prodigal son was a son to start with, wasn't he? And he didn't, he didn't lose his salvation. He lost his inheritance. He came back as a son and restored, but he spent his inheritance, right? So the inheritance is an issue that we'll look at. It's one thing to be granted inside the kingdom through salvation. It's another thing to get inheritance. And getting inheritance has to do with rewards. Okay? We'll talk about that. So... When we look at ourselves as and we evaluate ourselves, uh, you know the, the real simple question: Are you a believer? Yes, I am convinced that Christ is the Messiah, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, that He died on a cross for my sins and rose on the third day, and I believe that. Well, if you believe that, there's nothing else special that you need to do. If you believe that, it means you say it. You're saved. It's as simple as that. Do you believe that? Am I convinced that? Am I willing to st- uh, to stake my eternity on that? Yeah. Okay. That means you believe. But from, but from that, then, it's a matter of, do you trust the Lord in other areas of your life now? Because now He's going to start working on the areas of unbelief in other pockets and categories of your life, and there's where the rewards come from. So it's a discipleship issue, not a salvation if, issue. OK, let's turn to first, uh, Second Corinthians, sorry, uh, five: nine. And, and then look at um, Paul talking about this in general. We'll probably come back to this many times, but let's just look at the, 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 the passage, one of the passages itself, um, to understand the motivation. He says, therefore, we make it our aim, or like our goal, that's what we're striving for as a believer, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Okay, So he's saying this in context of rewards. So the whole goal of rewards and the motivation is to be well pleasing to him. Well, if you are doing things that actually gain you rewards, that means you're being you're you're in a state of being uh, pleasing to the Lord. Okay. Now, what you have to understand about this is is some 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 right terminology about this. So, as a believer, I want to be pleasing. And if I don't please him, I'm obviously displeasing him. But that doesn't mean I'm not saved. It means I'm displeased. So, so just like your children, your children can be pleasing to you. And when they turn teenagers, they're very displeasing to you, right? And everyone said amen. Okay. Because what happens when they turn teenagers, all of a sudden they turn into this monster that, was, is, that you don't think it's your kid, but it is your kid, and they're a monster. And you're like, oh, man, will they ever get their sanity back? And they do around 21, 22, 23. And some maybe not. Maybe some are delayed by 30, 35, maybe 40, maybe 50. I've seen a lot of 50-year-old children. Okay. So, um, but something changes in them, obviously, and, and their hormones got to go out of whack, and they become this little monster. So as a parent, this, the, that's always your kid, but... Sometimes you don't like your kid, right? I mean, you love your kid, but you're like, man, I don't like you. I don't want to be around you right now because you're a stinker, and you're, you're making me upset, and I don't like this. But that's always your kid, okay? The same is true with us, with Messiah. Sometimes we're, we're a stinker to him, and we're doing stupid things. We're not in reality. We're, we're, we're doing our own agenda, and we're goofing around, and we're displeasing to him. Okay, so the goal in obviously in life is to be pleasing to him, and, and, and the other term you'll you see in scripture is approval or disapproval that he approves of the way I'm living, he's approving of what I'm doing, or, or is he disapproving? Okay, and, and 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 displeasing and disapproval have to do with you know, is the believer in sin, is the believer in false doctrine. Is the believer, you know, doing something outside the will of God, right? That's, that's what happens. But please note, this has nothing to do with acceptance or rejection, okay? Nothing to do with that, okay? Because Messiah, he himself says, look, I will cast no one out if you come to me. I will cast no one out. So he promises you, if you come to him in faith and you get saved... He will never reject you. You're never going to be cast out. So you, you have your acceptance. You're never rejected once you're saved. So those categories, you cannot bring them into these other categories of pleasing and approval or disple- displeasing or disapproval because you're going to mix up the categories. And this is where people start thinking, oh my goodness, I'm not saved. Oh my goodness, I never got saved or, or I lost my salvation. And you have all these wrong thoughts and wrong soteriologies that start popping up in people's mind. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, let's, let's make sure our, our categories are, are kept that way, because that's what he's saying. Look, well-pleasing to him, not acceptance from him, I'm um, well-pleasing him. Okay, so, so how do I know, how do I know what is well-pleasing to him? How do I know if I'm displeasing him? Well, you really don't know until you go back to the word of God. And then, you know, obviously Romans chapter 12 points this out, do not be conformed by the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, so I go to the word of God, so my mind can be renewed, but so why? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, okay? That's why you renew your mind. Okay, what does he mean by that? Because a lot of people actually write books on this passage, and they're saying, trying to find the will of God for your life. And, and people will use this as, like you know, I'm trying to find the will of God or what kind of mate I need to marry or, you know, what person I'm going to date or, you know, what college I'm going to go to. That's not what this passage is meaning at all. The acceptable and perfect will of God has to do with what is written in his word about what he finds acceptable in your life and what he finds not acceptable. And so when he says renew your mind, yes, you go to the scriptures, but for what? For the information that you know that is contained in there of what kind of lifestyle you're supposed to live. Okay, It tells you what the will of God is for the lifestyle. So that's why this is, when you start seeing Christians that are gay affirming, gay marriage affirming, or um, they're, they're not in line with us, obviously, it's a form of apostasy. So if they don't know that, they haven't renewed their mind. They don't, they don't know where God stands on this. Or maybe they do and they're just ignoring it. That could be a case, obviously. But many Christians are just simply ignorant of things. Uh, you know, when we talk to Olivia Melnick tonight, you know, um, you know, we're going to talk about the church a little bit and the anti-Semitism in the church, and it's like, where does this come from? And a lot of the people, I think the pastors are blamed for it, but a lot of the people are just simply ignorant of the issue of Israel. Uh, they, they, they don't know Israelogy as a doctrine. They don't know how, how the covenants work, and, and of course they're ignorant of that. But why are they ignorant of it? Because they haven't renewed their mind on that. They haven't heard preaching. They haven't studied the the, the doctrine of Israel and and whatnot. And so therefore, they're ignorant. And because of that ignorance, they don't know what the acceptable and perfect will of God is concerning Israel. They don't know how to view it. And so, you know, to them, they probably just sit there and their pastor's, you know, committing the sin of silence, not talking about what's going on in the world. And they just stay in their ignorance. They just never know. They're never challenged about it. They're never talked to about it. And, um, and, and so as an example, they don't know what, to, what, to, what side to be on on that issue, um, and that's very concerning, obviously. But that goes for other things. I mean, you know, the, the common thing uh, in Christianity is people live together, and they think that's okay now. And it's like, it's not okay to live together. And, 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 and where did you think shacking up is acceptable now? I know the world does it, but it, it's not acceptable Ever. You know, and, and, and people think it is, and, and they're Christians, and, and they're ignorant of this, obviously, because they don't know the per- acceptable perfect will of fornication, that fornication is wrong, or whatever the topic might be, right? So the renewing of the mind gives you the mind of Christ, gives you, gives you the worldview that you're supposed to have in order to interpret the or surroundings around you and interpret the events that are happening around you. So, anyway, there's that. So that's how we, we find the will of God so we can be pleasing to him. And then in verse 10 he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ or the Messiah. And the word in Greek is bima, is where we get the bima seat. And why does Paul use this? Well, the bima seat obviously was used in the Olympics um, and, and, and during that time, I think it was like every third year they had the Olympics and the judges would re- reward uh, the, the competing athletes in the Olympia, uh, Olympics um, through, uh, by, uh, by bringing them before the Bema seat and giving them, them their rewards. And, and, and so there's where Paul borrows that from the Greek Olympics and says, hey, look, this judgment that we're going to go to, because he says all are going to appear um, before the judgment seat, so all believers are going to appear there and, and uh, this, this Bema Seeds borrowing the, the, the concept from the Olympics there and he's saying, when we stand before Christ, it's going to be like this at this judgment. It's going to be the re- like a rewarding ceremony that, that happens at the Olympics. Okay, But it's much more than that. Again, don't, you don't want to press it so hard that you think it's, like I've always said, you guys, you know, us going to a Rusty's pizza parlor and, and you know, our kids are getting trophies for participation and everyone's getting a, a reward for coming in last. It's not that. Uh, yes, it's a reward judgment, but it's way more than that. Uh, it's not a judgment over your sin or my sin. Uh, that's been taken care of. But your sin and my sin can have a secondary effect at that judgment. So, so let me give you an example. Uh, if I act like a knucklehead for a season of time in my life, for that, that period of knucklehead in this or, or prodigal son living, I will be losing rewards at that time. Okay? Can I gain rewards back? Yes, but in some cases you can't. In, in certain cases of apostasy you can't gain rewards back and we'll look at that when we study Hebrews chapter 6. But nonetheless, you can gain your rewards back and you can earn things back. Some of them you can't. Okay, so if we go to the Lord and we don't gain those rewards back, um, obviously um, our sin affected our ability to have those rewards. So it's, it, our sin affects us in a secondary way. Our sin's not going to be brought up, but there's gonna be elements where I can't reward you, I can't reward you, I can't reward you here or there or whatever, and it's gonna be due to what we were doing. So it's a secondary thing. So yes, our sin is not judged because it's already judged at the cross, but it does affect us. It does affect our rewards. So that's why we have to consider sin in our lives serious business. We not only break fellowship with the Lord, when we're in sin and we lose temporal blessings and we can be punished and we can be whipped and taken to the woodshed, no doubt about that. And, and in fact, sometimes God will take our lives early. Our, our lives can be shortened um, by the lifestyle we live. And, you know, he does that. He did to the Ananias and Savior, He did it to the Corinth church. But then it can affect our rewards, okay? So anyway, we must all appear before the judgment seat, the bema of Christ, and 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 this so obviously this is different than the great white throne judgment. It is a works judgment. Okay, so here's the thing: if you're you're at the bema seat, that means you're a believer, right? If you're at the great white throne judgment, it means you're not a believer. Okay, and that happens after the millennial reign of Christ. But both judgments are based on works, because your de- your determination of salvation or law, uh, or not having salvation has already been determined in this life when you die that's when you you lose the the last chance to either be saved or or lost is this probationary period called life and that's that's where where we make this decision so the decision on the, at the bema is not whether you're a christian or not you're a christian because you're showing up there so anyway that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Okay, so obviously notice what it says, things done in the body. So when you're here uh, on this earth, you're doing things in the body, okay? So it limits the scope of what the judgment encompasses. It doesn't count after after you leave your body. It only encompasses your life, your probationary period. And basically, it's according to your works, what you have done, good or bad. Now, how does good works play into this, and how do bad works play into this? Good works gain rewards. Bad works lose rewards. So this is, this is an ever-flowing thing that's going on based on what you're doing and how you're living. Uh, good works uh, then have to be defined. What are good works? Because a lot of people think they're doing good works, and they're actually not. They're actually doing bad works, and they think they're doing good. That's the, that's the scary part, is that people don't know what really good works are. Well, how do we know? Well, the Scriptures define what good works are, and we'll see this in just a second. Um, a lot of times, I think, uh, I think what believers will be shocked about is they thought they were doing good things, and they actually were not, uh, and they can't be rewarded for it. Uh, maybe their motivations were wrong. Maybe you know, maybe their agenda was wrong. It looked good on the outside, but the way the Messiah looks at things, he doesn't just simply look on the outside. He looks at the heart. He looks at the motivation. He looks at. He, can, he Messiah can factor all of those things in, like you know, how what percentage of your motivation was selfish. He can, he can actually weigh that out, he knows. How much was it based on you know, pleasing man rather than God? How much was it really pure motivation that you wanted to serve Christ? And he actually can weigh that out. And the, the bad motivations or whatever, will he will filter out, and he will reward that which is good, that which can be rewarded. And so, you know, obviously Messiah being omniscient knows that and he can read our hearts and read our minds and know all about that. Okay, <clears throat> and let me show you another passage that continues on this same thing. I'll get to what good and bad works are in just a second, but let's continue on with what he says. He says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God and I also trust are well known in your consciences. And, and so, uh, this, this verse 11, he continues on, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, persuading men is persuading them to accept the gospel of Christ, right? is what he's talking about. And, and, and so, but this concept of terror of the Lord should, should burn in all of our heads. And here's where the other motivation comes from. It's not just simply I want to be pleasing to the Lord, but I definitely don't want to be displeasing because of the terror of the Lord. The fear of him is what he's saying. Because there's a healthy respect and reverential awe that should motivate us to be pleasing to him. And then when we're not, we should have a healthy fear of him. Not a, ter- not a, not a fear like of an unbeliever but a fear of that this is our Father who can discipline us, that can take us to the woodshed, that can say, hey, man, I don't like what you're doing, and I'm going to pull out the belt. Okay, that kind of fear is what he's talking about, is that, oh, my goodness, this is not just, uh, you know, uh, 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 um, God on the cloud, like a Santa Claus, and boys will be boys type of mentality, Paul is bringing in another another picture is that you better have a, a very reverential fear for what the Messiah can do to you if you're displeasing to him. Not, not, it's, not a, it, it's, it's, it's not a scare tactic of salvation. It's, a, scare t- it, it's a, a reverential fear. Now, let me explain this. You will see when we start studying some of the rewards that... Messiah takes seriously people who mess around with other believers. Um, We call that spiritual abuse. And uh, in Matthew 24, he says uh, one of these servants saw that his master was gone for some time, and so he started abusing the other servants. And he started beating them, you know, and and thinking that the master's not coming, so he started taking things out on, on the other servants. And then the master comes back and he says, look, when the master returns, he's going to take that servant and he's going to cut them in two and then assign him a place with the hypocrites. And, um, and one of the things you see a lot of times in Christianity is spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse with leadership, spiritual abuse with believer to believer, and things of that nature. Well, in that passage, when he says that the Messiah will cut you in two, will cut you in half. What does he mean by that? And then assign you a place with the hypocrites in the kingdom. Well, it's obviously a a euphemism. It it, it, obviously, it's it's using the euphemism of cutting someone in half and just slicing and dicing them up, right? Well, what do you mean? Well, it's through the Messiah's word when you're standing in front of him, that he will slice and dice you with the word of God, okay? And, and basically, he will give you the biggest tongue lashing and, and in your dish type of talk you will ever have with God if you do that. And that's where Paul is, is referencing this terror of the Lord that is an awful thing if the Lord himself has to reprimand you at the bema seat for abusing other servants, okay? And by the way, there's a lot of people like that that they're going to have a talking to, and, and, and the cutting in half is him slicing and dicing them with the word of God, you know, showing them what they did, and the loss of reward is reflected in being assigned a place with the hypocrites in the kingdom, Okay? And, and, and believers can be hypocrites. There's no doubt about that. You're gonna see a lot of hypocrites in the days to come on all these topics that we're talking about in current events. There's a lot of Christians that say they're against something, but then they don't say anything about it. They commit the sin of silence or you know, they're cowards or whatnot. Cowards are hypocrites, okay? That's what, that's what they are, they're hypocrites because they, they pretend to be for something or against something but then, when it, when things really come out to their the front of their front of their uh, you know their doorstep, they're nowhere to be found. They will neither say yea or nay, and so basically that hypocr- hypocrisy actually gets penalized in the kingdom um, because of that. So that's what he's kind of referring to. It, it, it's it's and so I, I, like I always come back to you. It's not like hey, we're going to Rusty's Pizza, everyone gets a trophy, and everyone's happy, there will actually be people who are ashamed in front of the Messiah. Uh, and and 1 John, uh, John chapter 2 talks about people being ashamed at his appearing. Well, he's not talking about unbelievers. 1 John is about believers and that in First John is not the test of salvation. It's the test of discipleship of whether you know him experientially in your walk with him. It's not a salvation uh, uh, book. It's a discipleship book. Okay. Well, what is this idea of shame? Well, it's the idea of shame of the person not having rewards. And, 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 and now, in, as he's given them the tongue lashing for, for what they have done and wasting their life, they are ashamed, okay? Now, people ask me, how long will that shame last? Well, I, I would just say this. It lasts through the Bema seat. I don't think the shame lasts for all eternity, and, and you know, I think you have to do business with the Lord, and, it, and in that moment and in that time, you will be ashamed if you lost reward and you didn't do all that you needed to do. And then after that, then it's reconciled. It's dealt with, but it will be dealt with. That's the point, it will not last for all eternity, but what will last for all eternity? Either your gain or loss of reward will be reflected for all eternity. Okay, these are eternal rewards. And again, your people, i probably myself, is going to have regret at the Bema Seat. There's probably things I should have done or could have done, sins of omission, sins of commission, all that stuff is going to be weighed out. And obviously there's going to be rejoicing over some of the rewards and there's going to be loss of rewards. And I think that's where the sobering uh, of standing before Christ about this uh, is supposed to hit us. Uh, It's supposed to be, you know, the terror of the Lord. It's the the fear and reverential awe of, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to account for how I lived. Okay. Now, that being the case... Um, Let me take five minutes, and and we got to take a break and get ready for Olivia coming on at 7. How do I determine what is a good good work versus a bad work? How do I know if I'm actually on the right agenda? How do I know? Watch this. Verse Corinthians 3. For we are God's fellow workers, right? So God has invited us to work with him. You are God's field. You are God's building, okay? And what is God building, okay? Well, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. So the apostles, and this is including the apostle Paul, has laid the foundation for the church, okay? Laid the theology down. It's all down, okay? So starting with Peter and the 12, and then the apostle Paul, the apostles to the Gentiles, they gave us the theological foundation for the church okay for us our period of time but let each of each one take heed how he builds on it what is the it the foundation that the apostles laid down okay we're not israel so we we don't we're not replacement theology we're the church and therefore We are following the law of the Messiah, not the law of Moses. And the law of the Messiah uh, has 1,050 commands. And this is the foundation the apostles laid down. Okay. So let each one take heed of how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than, uh, than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay. So the foundation that the apostles laid is the theology about the Messiah, the revealing of the Messiah, which includes basically the New Testament revelation. Okay, um, And again, it's not to, not to ignore the Old Testament, because you won't understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. You have to understand the Old Testament to understand how the New Testament functions. And, and so you have to take the whole 66 books. Please understand that. But this new revelation that we're finding out about the Messiah came to us via the New Testament. And then the last book, Revelation, is what? The revealing of the Messiah at the second coming as king and as judge, right? And so people ignore the book of Revelation. Well, they're ignoring Revelation about Messiah and who he is and what else he does. And and so to their detriment, they, they miss parts of the Messiah because they refuse to read Revelation or whatever, Daniel, or whatever. Okay, so he's saying, look, this is the foundation, therefore you have to build on this foundation of Jesus Christ, this, this theology that, that, that you now have. And you can only build on this theology, which is Jesus Christ. Now, he says, now if anyone builds on this foundation, which with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it. What day? The day when you stand before the Messiah, at the Bema seat, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire is judgment, the judgment of the Messiah. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which has been built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So it's not a salvation issue, as he says, But again, it's talking about suffering, loss, and reward. Okay, so what's the point? The point is, and we'll study this more next week, the point is, first of all, in order to do a good work, it must be built on that foundation. If you do a good work that's not built on that foundation, and it's off-site, so to speak, off-site on another foundation, you're not going to get any reward for that. Okay, It has to be built on the theological foundation that you're doing this for for this, for Christ, okay? So the motives have to be right and the theology has to be right. That is one of the keys. Your theology has to be right in order to do the work that's correct, okay? So what tends to happen is some believers are off the foundation because they're into false doctrine and they're doing good things but they're doing it on the basis of false doctrine. Well, you're on the wrong foundation and when you work on the wrong foundation, it's an instant... No reward, okay? So, it, so let's just take the cults, for example. The cult, the, let's take the Mormons, okay, as an example. They don't build on the right foundation because their theology's messed up. So they're on the wrong foundation, okay? So, so what, are, what are those foundations of the Mormon church? Well, it's the foundation of marriage, maybe. They're real big on marriage, and they're real big on family. Well, that's not Jesus Christ, that's the foundation of marriage, or that's the foundation of, of, of uh, the Mormon family. That, that's the wrong foundation. Uh, let's go to, I don't know, the Roman Catholic Church. Claims to be Christian, right? They're not, because they do, uh, based on a work salvation. So their theology, their foundation is wrong. They might have the person of Christ right, but they have the work of Christ incorrect. And because of that foundation, they build on the wrong foundation. They think they're doing things for God, but they're actually not going to get any rewards because their theology is messed up. And quite frankly, the Mormons and Catholics who believe in works-based salvation cannot be saved because they believe in works-based salvation unless they come to the right theology and believe that it's by faith alone. Okay, so, so we, it's obvious that they build on the wrong foundation. But let's say a believer that's not in a cult starts accepting false doctrine into their theology, well then, once they do that, and the more false theology they start accepting, they're actually creating the wrong foundation. And therefore, the things they do in the name of Christ are null and void because they're on the wrong foundation. So the foundation all goes back to correct doctrine. Your doctrine has to be correct, okay? Okay? So that's part of the rewards, okay? Well, let's say you're building on the wrong, you're building on the right foundation. So this is a second tier of understanding. So you're building on the right foundation. You got your doctrine correct. Okay, great. But then he says, you build on it with wood, hay, and straw. And it won't last the fire. So what happens there? It burns up. So what does that have to come back to? It comes back to sometimes your motive and your agenda. You might be on the the right foundation, but your motives are wrong and your agenda is wrong. And if that's the case, then those works will be burned up and will not be approved. And then, obviously, next week I'm going to talk about gold, silver, and precious stones and what all that uh, means. But, as you can see, it's more than what you think. It's not, this is not, uh, you know, the doctrine of rewards is not some basic, you know, uh, you know Bible 101 there is a full doctrine here and you start realizing the depth of it and you start whoa that's different than what I thought that brings all, that shines a whole new light on how I actually walk with the Lord and it makes me pay attention to my theology that's the key because what Christians believe typically do is they ignore their theology, theology and they think it's not important. And their whole reward structure is based on right theology. Ooh, well that brings a whole, so what does that mean? It means you must have your theology correct. You must have, and that's why we always strive to make sure, am I believing right? Is, am I holding this, this doctrine right? Uh, and you have to and you find out that, oh no, I'm wrong on this, and, and you have to adjust, you have to correct. And and, and if you don't, you're building on the wrong foundation. You're doing the wrong things. This is why, like, I, I really challenge people, think about your Calvinism, think about your Arminianism. Because that if you if you 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 will you will live out your theology, okay? And if you live out that theology, what you will start seeing with bad theology is bad works. You will think they're good, but they're actually bad. So well, here's a bad work, for instance, based on the theology. If you think, as a Calvinist does, that your, that your works prove that you're saved, then what you're robbing yourself from is assurance of salvation. Because like when John MacArthur was challenged, They asked him, are you 100% sure you're saved? He says, I'm about 98% sure. So if I have that in my theology, what will that do to my behavior? I will lose assurance, and what does assurance do? If I I don't have assurance, how does that factor into my life? You're stressed out? You don't know if if you've done enough to prove to yourself that you're saved? You're actually doubting the Messiah's promise when he says, "If you believe in me, I will give you eternal life." So you're actually doubting that. It has serious ramifications in how you start living, and you start living in stress in a stressed environment because you lack you lack assurance, and therefore you will start doing things in your life to prove that you are saved, and then you will part, and, and that starts, you you become a hamster. On a uh, on a wheel that just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning until the day you die, and you will be like John MacArthur saying, "I'm about 98% sure I'm saved," but you'll never know for sure. So it it starts affecting you. Anyway, so that's what bad theology has ramifications, doesn't it? Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's word. For more information about our ministry we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.